Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. You Can't Live by Content Alone by Daniel Kim Apparently, Scorpio women from Gen Z are the most passionate about astrology, while Taurus Gen X men are the most sceptical. At least that's according to a delightfully insightful consumer report put together by Astrology website with over 2,800 respondents. I'm a Taurus 1995 millennial man, so I'm not sure where that puts me. I'm also a trainee Anglican vicar, which may contribute more to my demographic features, but that's beside the point. We are increasingly fascinated by spirituality and religious practices. We are at a point where we can no longer assume that ticking no religion on a survey means you're an atheist or that you don't believe in a supernatural realm or a god. In fact, a report by Theos found that only 51% of people in the UK who claimed no religion also claimed that they don't believe in God. That's unreal. Another unbelievable insight from the 2022 UK religious data was that shamanism is now the UK's fastest growing religious movement. Meanwhile, hashtag witch talk had 18 billion views in 2021, even hitting the mainstream when it got its own BBC article last year. For the uninitiated, these are TikToks that introduce people to witchcraft practices. A quick wander around the Waterstones What We Recommend tables is enough to see the huge push to retrieve ancient traditions that help people navigate the spiritual wilderness of modern life. Marcus Aurelius's Stoicism and the Confucian classics are making their comeback. It goes beyond self-help. I used to work in a Soho advertising agency. I remember sitting on a teal-coloured mid-century sofa with colleagues discussing star signs and pagan mythology over coffee break. As the Christian, I was the one feeling like the cynical sceptic. That's a strange experience and feels like cultural whiplash. Flashback 10 years and secondary school in the mid-noughties and early 10s was brutal as a Christian. I watched Richard Dawkins's polemic God Delusion documentary during my RE classes and my fellow classmates laying into Christianity like it was the most vile and stupid thing in the world. Anyone who believed in a supernatural reality was equally vile and stupid. Today, the new atheist movement seems like a strange late 20th century aberration that has very much given way to a re-spiritualising world. In some cruel corners of Reddit, the new atheist is even a subject of ridicule. It's possible to discern two impulses going on in this re-spiritualisation. On one side of the heart... There are those who are reaching for the spiritual, but not the religious, wanting connection with something bigger than themselves to provide meaning and an experience of transcendence. On the other hand, 
There are those who lean more religious but not spiritual. We want something to provide structure and order to our lives. There's less of a concern about the spiritual experience, but a desire to rein in the chaotic life. I used to have agnostic friends who would pop into a Catholic mass because they like the stability of the ritual. These are two ends of a continuum, and invariably we are all somewhere in the middle. Both impulses are profoundly important ingredients to a life that is full of meaning. This, in my opinion, as an exciting and positive move in our society. It turns out that humans really can't live on bread alone, not least on careers, brunches or think piece articles. And we certainly can't live on content alone. There is a spiritual vacuum and we're reaching for the oxygen. But in all of this, there's a serious concern. Because wherever there's demand, there is profit to be made. And right now, there is ample spiritual demand. When reflecting on astrology's role in contemporary society, the People Astrology Report deems it the perfect solution for our hyper-individualised culture. And the report ends with an ominous recognition that the market for spiritual consciousness and wellness will be a $3.7 trillion industry. The valuation of the spirituality marketplace and the emphasis on hyper-individualism has me seriously worried. It opens the door to the commodification of religio-spiritual practices and extracting capital value from people's genuine spiritual search. It can become a product that we use rather than a profound source of ultimate meaning. And it's already happening. Sacred Design Labs, for example, is a consultancy that looks to translate ancient wisdom and practices to help organisations develop products, programmes and experiences that uplift social and spiritual lives. Their vision is genuinely positive. It's to make the workplace a less sterile and meaningless place. Don't we all want that? However, they are also perfect examples of the trend in capitalising on this burgeoning market. To illustrate the point, one New York Times article recounts where the consultancy was hired to pull together hundreds of religious practices and categorise them by emotional states in order to give them possible uses in different corporate contexts. This exercise made the client realise how many useful tools existed inside something as old-fashioned as his childhood church. I'm glad that religious practices are getting a hearing in mainstream corporate contexts, but it saddens me to hear words like useful being used to describe them. That's only a hop and a skip away from efficient or profitable. The inconvenient truth is that this commodification of spirituality is not just something corporations can be guilty of. We as late modern individuals can be guilty of stripping religious practices out of their religious context and incorporating them into our self-care programmes. Tara Isabella Burton, author of Strange Rites, New Religions for a Godless World, calls this bespokeification of religion. As Burton notes, we risk seeing spirituality as something we can consume, something for us, something for our brand. 
And when we turn spirituality into a product, we turn it into something trivial. The irony is that this is profoundly counterproductive. Haven't we agreed that hyper-individualism and the commodification of everything were precisely the things that led us to the spiritual vacuum we are now living in? If there was anything that Karl Marx, Aldous Huxley and Billy Graham could agree on, it's at least that. Are we doomed to repeat the radically individualistic cycle of dismantling the very thing that we are desperately grasping after? Deep connection with our community, with our work, with our bodies, with our universe, and perhaps just maybe with our God. Satisfying our spiritual hunger is about more than just increasing our efficiency and decreasing our blood pressure. It's about some of the most important questions any human individual can ask. Who am I? What am I made for? Is there a God or a spiritual dimension to the universe? Am I free or fated? What happens after I die? All these questions require us to look beyond ourselves and to stare into the wild edges of human experience. If we are going to embark on a journey of spiritual discovery, whether it's through astrology, pagan mythology, silent retreats, Tibetan Buddhism or, dare I say, Christianity, we can't let our spiritual hunger be commodified for profit. Neither can we let it shrink back to the hyper-individualism that will keep us locked away in a prison called self. Our spiritual wellness is too important for that. It is worth more, infinitely more, than $3.7 trillion, or a subscription service advertised to you on Instagram. After the Anniversary by Peter Robertson Christian Aid first met Lyuba Reznichenko in July 2022, after the then 25-year-old had fled her home and her studies at the Music Academy in Dnipro, for a remote village in western Ukraine. She was sharing a bungalow with three families, including a friend from her church in Dnipro. Her parents, brother and three sisters were still in Kherson, under Russian occupation. They were safe, but Lyuba could not get to them. She spoke about her worries and said she was missing playing music, but was enjoying the nature around her. I caught up with Lyuba in Lviv via a Zoom interview. She updated us on the liberation of Kherson, but explained her parents were under constant shelling from the Russians. Lyuba plays the bandura, at the National Instrument of Ukraine. Her father advised her to take her bandura with her when she escaped, so if she ended up with nothing, she could still busk. She has since staged performances in Le Vieux City Centre to raise people's spirits and talked about how emotional people get. They want peace and victory, she said. She also spoke about her faith, the work she's been doing helping refugees and the support she received from Christian Aid's partner, Hungarian Interchurch Aid. Nuba said when she looks back at the past year, she gets frustrated. It sometimes feels like I'm ready to succumb to all that, because I understand we cannot do that. We must hope, we must pray. I do believe that God will help us and victory will be ours.
What was your life like before the war? I was studying at the Music Academy in Dnipro. Before that, I went to see my parents at Kherson during the New Year holidays. I was planning to go visit them again in March, but 24th of February changed everything. I was in Dnipro and my entire family was in Kherson. What did you feel when you learned about the Russian invasion on the 24th of February? Like the majority of Ukrainians, I started getting phone calls at 4am from my friends who were saying, get up, the war has started. It was horrible. I was very scared as we heard the first air raids and explosions. Horror is the only thing I remember about that day. What happened next? I stayed in Dnipro until mid-March to avoid plunging into panic and depression and as a believer, I will be honest with you, I prayed a lot. I do believe that God supports, protects and helps. The church I used to go to opened a centre for the first wave of refugees from Kharkiv and Zaporizhia regions. As my own family was in the area under occupation and I could not do anything to help them, I decided to start helping those refugees. Then I learned of an opportunity to evacuate to western Ukraine in March. I grabbed it. This is how I ended up in Transcarpathian region. What is your experience of interaction with Christian aid? I stayed with a very kind and hospitable family in the village there. They have many children and helped other refugees, and I helped them every time I could. Then in May, I learned of the Hungarian charity HIA, Christian Aid Partner, and registered with them. They supported me financially. As a student, I do not have any means. I could not ask my parents for helps, as they were living under occupation and banks did not work there. How did you stay in touch with your family? It was a very difficult situation. There had been protracted periods, like a week, two weeks and a half, when I could not get in touch with them, as there were no phone connection, no internet in Kherson. I was horrified by the news I read. A strike here, an explosion there... I was thinking about my family all the time. But there were moments when I could reach them on, an, on a chat app. The connection was bad, but still. And when you hear the voice of your nearest and dearest, that's a great relief. How is your family now? Herson was liberated on 11th November, but then the situation only deteriorated because the Russians were shelling it from the right bank almost non-stop. My parents tell me that this is going on almost without interruptions. When did you move to Lviv and return to Dnipro? At the end of August, I moved to Lviv, where I met other believers who were actively involved in charity work. I worked with them too. We staged performances in the city centre. I played bandura and sang patriotic songs to raise people's morale. Then I returned to Dnipro to complete my studies. I continued cooperation with this organisation there. We were quite active there too. We toured the region with performances. I played Bandura a lot. What is people's reaction to your performances? The reaction is abundant. People do react to my songs. They cry too. They become very emotional. They all want peace and victory. What do you feel about the first anniversary of the war? It is all very difficult. When it all started, there was hope that it would end in a week or two. And then a month passed, another, 
Still, there was hope that it will just come to an end. When I look back at the year, I just become frustrated. It sometimes feels like I am ready to succumb to all that. But I understand that we cannot do that. We must hope. We must pray. I do believe that God will help us and victory will be ours. What do you think about the UK charity organisations helping Ukrainians? First, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for supporting us all this time. This is an awful situation and many Ukrainians need help, especially those living in eastern Ukraine in hotspots, which has seen fierce fighting, the newly liberated territories where people have no place to live, where they lost loved ones. Those people need more support. I would like to say that more aid is directed there. Still, it is impossible to live there. It is not safe at all because of the non-stop raids and explosions. Those people who evacuated to the west of Ukraine need help, but they sometimes cannot get it because all the tension is focused on the east. So if you can, it would be good to distribute all the assistance among those staying in the east and those who moved here to the west. For Love There Is No Charge by Sean Brooks Spoiler alert, this film review reveals significant elements of the plot of the film. Alleluia is not a film that shies away from the big issues. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find a big issue that this comedy-slash-political-commentary-slash-drama-slash-part-thriller doesn't at least make reference to. And yes, it spreads itself across all of these genres too. With such an eclectic approach, it is difficult at times to keep up with the narrative and the deeper meaning of the film. Based on the Alan Bennett play, the plot centres around the Bethlehem, a small northern hospital for geriatric patients, which is facing closure due to the Tory government's efficiency drive. It focuses on two members of staff, Alma Gilpin, a stoic and matter-of-fact but seemingly excellent nurse who has served the hospital her entire career, and a younger Dr Valentine. Other protagonists include an ex-minor patient and his son, a management consultant who has made it to London and is currently advising the health secretary to close hospitals such as the one in question for the sake of government finances. Whether it's politics or the personal, this film has it all. It deals with levelling up, the cultural and economic gap between the North and South, the challenges of the budget cuts in the NHS, the problems of a National Health Service claiming to care, but with managers more preoccupied by Westminster's economic priorities. It depicts families waiting for older relatives to die in order to grab their inheritance, the broken relationship between an ageing man and his son, and those all-important stories of the older patients' lives well-lived. And yet... As the storyline develops, a plot twist emerges which comes to overshadow the entire film and in the process speaks to what is perhaps the most poignant of the many discussions it raises. Nurse Gilpin, who until now has appeared consistently caring and committed to her patients, 
has been quietly administering fatal beakers of milk and morphine to those who she deems to be on her list of those who most need relief from their situation. When confronted by the doctor, she justifies her actions with a multifaceted answer based on the requirement to provide more beds to a broken healthcare system, but also insisting, I had ended someone's suffering. The manner in which Nurse Gilpin goes about what is effectively enforced euthanasia is deeply chilling. And yet her reasoning is not entirely foreign to us. To end suffering could be deemed a noble cause. In fact, the need to simply delete the reality of suffering, particularly the suffering of the old, is one that perhaps is not so uncommon. Throughout Alleluia, we are reminded of our tendency to run from, to detest, to reject the suffering of the elderly in our society. When Dr. Valentine remarks, I like old people, a visitor responds, not even old people like old people. A teenage intern declares to a patient, I hope I never live to be your age. At the same time, characters look back on the days when the elderly weren't farmed out. And questions are asked of families. If they love them, why do they put them away? A very good question. Of course, care needs are often too great for families to endure. Yet it is still important to ask why the suffering of the old has become a professionalised service, which most of us avoid at all costs. Perhaps the answer to this is that we don't like to watch the old suffer, we don't like to watch them die, because their suffering and their death reminds us of our future selves, our future suffering, our future death. In our sanitised, anything is possible with medicine and science society, death and the suffering that comes with it is something from which we flee at all costs. Instead of acknowledging and working with it, we would rather pretend it wasn't there at all. And yet, even if we try to avoid it, suffering and death are both certain parts of all our futures. 100% of us will die. For Nurse Gilpin, the solution to this is to bring on death prematurely, to erase the pain, overcome the misery by offering a false hope that it doesn't need to exist at all. In direct contrast to this, in a film which is littered with Christian references, Alleluia, the Bethlehem, there is a different approach taken by a messiah-type figure who seems to get everything right. Dr. Valentine is compassionate and understanding. He not only challenges the political systems which undermine those most at the margins of society, but also has the kind of bedside manner we would all hope for in a doctor. In a closing monologue, Dr. Valentine utters the words of the doctors in the NHS. We will be here when you are old, and we would die for you. We are love itself, and for love there is no charge. Nurse Gilpin and Dr. Valentine offer two fundamentally different approaches to end-of-life care. One hastens the end quickly, deletes the suffering as efficiently as possible in order to make way for those in less pain. The other sits with those who suffer, 
holds their hand, gently cares for the human person that is in front of them. Even more, and perhaps most significantly, Dr. Valentine does not only watch from afar, but is willing to suffer himself for the sake of those in pain, working tirelessly, giving himself over day after day, fighting on with little sleep for limited pay, just to make things a little less painful. It is this suffering with which is so compelling. This suffering with which is so truly sacrificial. This suffering with which speaks of something much greater than politics, efficiency or inheritance. This suffering with which is indeed love itself, completely free of charge. This is the logic that Christians see in the ancient notion of the Incarnation, celebrated every Christmas, of God with us. This is what our older people need. This is what we will all need when we grow old. Let us only hope that when we get there, we find the one who is willing to offer it. Strangers and the Sound of Belonging by Belle Tyndall. I had an empty couple of minutes to play with, so mostly due to muscle memory, I found myself opening my Instagram app. Bitchly, I do this multiple times a day, and mostly to no profound avail. But this one day, something caught my eye and sent me down a spiral of curiosity. And judging by how astronomically viral it went, it seems I was not spiralling alone. It was footage of Jacob Collier performing in Rome. Jacob is a singer, songwriter, jazz instrumentalist and general music prodigy. But that's not the most captivating thing about him. The Collier phenomena has erupted because of the way he turns his audience of strangers into a perfectly tuned, beautifully united choir. On this particular night in Rome, he managed to steer this audience to sing beyond the major scale and onto the far more complex chromatic scale, something he's been working towards for years. The most striking thing about this minute-long clip is not the beautifully raw sound, although it really is something to behold, but what this sound is communicating, a tangible sense of belonging. We each know how it feels to belong, and we are also acutely aware of the inverse, how it feels when a sense of belonging is lacking, and feelings of isolation creep in and make themselves at home in its absence. But for the sake of clarity, perhaps a working definition would help be helpful at this point, and for that I turn to the psychology dictionary. The PD defines belonging as a feeling of being taken in and accepted as part of a group thus fostering a sense of belonging. It also relates to being approved of and accepted by society in general, also called belongingness. The notion of belonging or belongingness has been well studied, and still its intrinsic power is staggering to consider. According to research published by the Australian Journal of Psychology, belonging is a universal and fundamental human need – one that may just be as important as food, shelter and physical safety. So intrinsic is it that the lack of belonging, resulting in acute loneliness, 
is attributed to a 26% increase in the risk of premature mortality. This has led the World Health Organization to officially recognise isolation as a determinant of health, placing it in the same category as smoking, physical inactivity and excessive alcohol consumption. Further research suggests that our brains perceive and subsequently react to social pain in the same way they are designed to react to physical pain. Releasing opioids and other instinctive painkillers when encountering a lack of belonging, our brains are detecting literal pain within us. As humans, we are susceptible to suffering social injuries, and it seems that subconscious parts of our brains take those injuries much more seriously than their conscious counterparts. Subsequently, when we speak of a person's need to belong, we're speaking of a need that has significant mental, emotional, spiritual, behavioural and physical repercussions. A need that is intersectional, if you will. It is a central construct at the core of our humanity and a defining variable in how we perceive reality. It could be suggested, considering all of this, that human beings were simply made to belong. The necessity of belonging is woven into our makeup. Over the final scene of the 2009 film World's Greatest Dad, Robin Williams's voice delivers a line that is so profound it lingers in your mind long after the end credits have finished rolling. He says, I used to think the worst thing in life would be to end up all alone. It's not. The worst thing in life is to end up with people who make you feel alone. There's a staggering wisdom in that. Namely, that belonging is not the inevitable outcome of simply getting people into one room. That's the difference between the Collier concert, where the audience are truly belonging to each other, if only for an evening, and the coffee shop where I'm sitting right now, filled with people using laptops and headphones as a form of defence against the threat of small talk, each of us belonging only to ourselves. If it were the case that proximity equated to belonging, urbanisation and the subsequent squeezing of populations into close quarters would have surely deterred the epidemic of loneliness that the West currently finds itself in. And yet it is not uncommon for neighbour and stranger to be identities that coexist. And what about the role of social media? Access to one another has never been so readily available. The world has never been so small and its population so close. And yet what social media so often provides is the affirmation and amplification of feelings of isolation. No, proximity alone is not the answer. Will Vanderhart writes that people don't just want to be with other people, they want to belong with them. Christianity has a lot to say on the subject of belonging or belongingness. The anonymous author of the creation literature, the chapters which act as the start line for the biblical narrative, notes how the only thing that was unsatisfactory about our freshly created world was the initial isolation of humanity. Such solitude was at odds with the blueprint for human flourishing and defied our design as intrinsically relational beings. 
The Christian faith therefore offers an explanation to humanity's fundamental need to belong. It presents a spiritual why behind the aforementioned neurological findings. The biblical narratives, the psychological research, they are united, if you pardon the pun, in their assessment of the human condition, namely that belonging is simply a non-negotiable. It's buried inside our biology. So perhaps it's no wonder Jacob Collier has caught the world's attention. He's providing a simple soundtrack to one of our most ingrained needs. It seems that what has long been communicated through ancient spiritual texts and more recently affirmed through endless psychological theories can also be communicated with a simple, harmonious sound. To watch that clip is to watch thousands of strangers belong. Belong to the room, belong to the moment, belong to the sound. In 1948, author and theologian A.W. Tozer pondered the nature of unity and human connection. He asked, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? If ever we were looking for an answer to this profound question, we need to look no further than Jacob Collier's audience and their sound of belonging. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from Seen and Unseen Aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.